We are in a series entrusted with the gospel, Paul's letters to the pastoral epistles, his letters to Timothy and to Titus. And today our scripture reading will be 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through, it says 1 through uh, 8, so we'll read through verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1, and again, this is the words of the Apostle Paul written to Timothy, who he had um, dispatched, we could say. Uh, Paul had dispatched Timothy to the church in Ephesus to kind of bring some things in order. And so here he gets to some of the issues related to the church that he wants to address. Verse 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you for your scripture that is breathed out by you, that it is profitable for us to equip us and train us in righteousness. And so we pray that as we, in these next few moments, heed the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to, to Timothy, we recognize that it is your words written to us. And so we pray that we hear them, that we believe them, and that we do them with your spirit enabling us to do so. And we ask that in Christ's mighty and precious name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, Butter. So today, kind of recap where we were in this series, so far in this series, we spent a couple of weeks looking at chapter one of Paul's letter to Timothy. And let's recap a little bit here in verse three of chapter one. He urges them, notice that word urges, he urges uh, when he is going on to Macedonia, he tells them to stay in Ephesus so that he could bring certain persons not to teach any uh, different doctrine. So he confronts the issue of false teaching there in the church. And then he gives a little autobiographical uh, section in verse 12 about his call to be an apostle and to be a minister, even though he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent person, that he was indeed saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that famous saying in verse 15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And now we get to chapter 2, 
where he now gets to the, uh, those were instructions to, we could say, Timothy specifically. Now he's getting instructions that are directed to the entire church. And the very first thing that he stresses is prayer. So today we're going to be looking at the topic of prayer, and in particular, evangelistic prayer. Okay, Evangelistic prayer. So notice how he says this in verse 1 and then also in verse 8. First of all, then, I urge, okay, so just as it was in verse 3 of chapter 1, he urged him to charge certain persons with not teaching false doctrine. He says, now I urge that the church be a church committed to prayer. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And this is, um, first, doesn't mean chronologically here. This means it's of, of first importance. And notice he lists the four different terms there for prayer. And we, we encountered this uh, a couple of months back when we were looking at our series on the, the Lord's Supper, the various terms that Paul often uses for prayer. We saw Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 6, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Remember, we walked through those. Paul uses, likewise, four terms for prayer, but he switches one out. Here it's supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And as we were reading this last night, I was like, so those are, I was t- talking with Janet, you know, about the, the sermon tomorrow morning. And, you know, so here's some things that I'm thinking about going through and we're looking at this. And then she goes, well, you can make a, an, a, an acronym of these various types of uh, things like I had done for how to pray. We did pray like praise, repent, ask, was it, or act, was it act? Yeah, there's a different one. Act, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And Janet goes, well, you could do spit this time. (laughs) Supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And I was like, I am using that tomorrow. (laughs) So supplications is just, uh, I mean, basically, there's not just four different types of prayers, but it is uh, multifaceted. That's Paul's point here, is saying prayer should be multifaceted here. You should present your requests to God. Prayers is kind of the general term for prayer. Intercessions is, uh, is appealing to somebody who's a much higher authority and kind of begging and imploring. And that all of this is to be done with thanksgiving. So prayer, and then, and, and Paul ends this section, notice in verse 8, he says, and I desire then, after he goes on kind of a little doctrinal uh, tangent or detour there for a little bit, he comes back and he goes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So prayer being this primary feature of the gathering of the Christian church. That's the first thing Paul addresses them. Timothy, go in a deal. I want you to deal with the false teachers and to put them out of the church, silence them. And now for everybody else, this is the the first order of issue for us as a church is prayer. That's prayer. The multifaceted nature of prayer and how central it should be to the life of the church. But then notice he says this. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So here's the second one in your outline. Who is prayer to be made for? All people. Now, 
We're going to encounter this word in a little bit. So I thought I would address this uh, here at the beginning. He uses the word all here several times in this passage. He uses it in verse 1, referring to all people. And he also uses it in verse 2 about all who are in high positions. And then he uses it in verse 4 when he speaks about all people to be saved. We're going to get to that one. And then he talked about Christ being a ransom, it says, for all. So what is meant here when Paul uses this word all? How are we to understand this? A lot of us would read this and we would think that all means every individual person who's ever existed or every single person alive. But there's another sense in which this is used here and that is every kind or every type representing all different kinds of people. So I'm, uh, I'm just going to lay that here at the beginning because we're going to come back to this here in a moment and why that will be important. So he's saying, should we pray for every single individual? Well, sure, if you, if you know the names and could pray specifically for every single individual. Or is he saying you should pray in this multifaceted way for every type of prayer that you, that you could come encounter, every kind of, uh, of person, not limited to one particular group, So we would pray for we would pray for all. Should we pray for our friends? Yes, we should pray for our friends. Should we pray for our enemies? Yes, Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. We should pray for all kinds of people, right? Jesus said, Gerd, it was say, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I said, do you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be your sons, like maybe sons of your father who is in heaven. The temptation, especially in the early center, very first century of the early church, uh, would be to think in categories, and, and this perhaps is connected maybe with the heresy that was involved here at the time, that there was a special knowledge that's only given to certain people, or in other letters of uh, that time in the first century, there would be issues between Jews and Gentiles. Here, Paul is saying prayer should be made for all. You should not have any distinctions here. So you should pray for, should we pray for Jews? Yes, you should pray for Jews and Gentiles. Should we pray for men? Yes, and women. Should we pray for free persons? Yes, and slaves. So we pray for all kinds of persons. And or the language I, I love from Revelation occurs a couple of times from every tribe and language and people and nation. So when it, the Apostle Paul says supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving should be made for all people. This is what he's what's behind this. And now he moves on. So this is why. So I say this to say our prayers then should be. Um, well, I'll put it this way. I think it's very frequent that our prayers get restricted to the things that we're most comfortable praying about or the people that we're most comfortable praying for. May our challenge be this morning that we expand the scope of who we are going to pray for this morning. Let our prayers be for all people. 
And the Apostle Paul, and I think he now moves to one group of people that might be the first we would dismiss needing prayer for. And so that is prayer for civil authorities. Verse 2. So he says, prayers as a church gathering should be made for all people. And then he goes, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, Paul is not saying these are the only people we should pray for, but it's an example of the ones that feel the farthest from us socially. Would you agree? There's a, if there's a category of people that, you, that feel far from you, unless you're in the halls of power or you know, connected in some sort of way, there's, to me, it, they feel like the farthest group away from me and the least likely that when I hear about them or see them, that my initial thought of them is I need to pray for them. Those who seem lead the farthest away from us socially, those are the ones that Paul's saying, and even pray for them. You should pray for all people, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave free, our enemies, those who persecute us, and kings and rulers and people and all those who are in high positions. What do we pray for? How many of you would say, by the way, that this is a great challenge for you to pray for rulers and those in authority over us? Okay? couple of honest hands. Probably some more there. It's a challenge for me, for sure. It, it really is not, they are not the ones that pop into my mind that I think that they need prayer. But the scripture commands us to, that, that we should pray for them. What should we pray? I, 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 I tend to think it's for a couple of things. First, you are to pray for their salvation. And more on this in a bit. We'll get to this more in verse 4. We are to pray for their salvation. Second, if they do not bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, pray that at least they would govern according to God's moral laws. That they would at least govern in a way that's protecting God's eternal moral law that is written upon everybody's hearts. I saw this tweet this last week. It says this, and this is in the context of a big debate on Christian nationalism and, and things like that. But I, I agree with this, this tweet. Civil magistrates should govern by a Christian moral framework. Okay? Now, don't, don't throw me into a, a camp of those people. I'm not, in the, I'm not in those camps. I'm trying not to be. But the fact remains that civil magistrates, remember Romans 13, they are God's servant. They're appointed by God to rule in this world. And they do not have carte blanche for how they are supposed to rule. They are to rule by God's standard, and God will judge them for it if they don't. So civil magistrates should govern by a Christian moral framework. I actually agree with that. Civil magistrates must, I would say should, but they should, they must. I say they are obligated to govern according to a Christian moral framework. So the first thing we should pray for is that we should pray for them to be genuinely converted and saved. The second is that we should be praying for them that they would at least be operating and governing in such a way that is respecting God's moral law. Now, Paul gives a reason for why we should be praying for them. That's the rest of verse 2. 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We should pray for those in civil authorities over us. We should pay, pray for kings. We should pray for those in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. How many of you would make that your ambition, to lead a peaceful and quiet life? How many want a strife-filled and noisy life? Peaceful and quiet. Wow, that's a good thing. And the Apostle Paul is directly connecting this to praying for your civil authorities. What's the purpose of praying for them? So that it will go well for us. Or, quite simply, I pray that they would just leave us alone. <laughs> I mean, how many of you are like, I, why, I want to be active in politics so that they could leave me alone. I just want to be left alone. I just want the freedom to live out my Christian life. What does it say? That we made a lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's, I don't just want to pray for my freedom so that I could do whatever I want to do. No, we, with that freedom comes the obligation to do what God is calling you to do. And that is to godliness and a dignified life. So in other words, let's pray for our civil authorities over us so that we could live the Christian life unobstructed. Unhindered. And again, it's not my impulse to pray for the civil authorities. But this is a good word for me in particular to remind me to pray for them. And the reason it, I, I like the reason why. I want that desired outcome. Then why don't I pray for them that the Lord would bring this to pass in them? So pray for civil authorities. And then prayer overall, the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, it's good. This is good and pleasing to God. This is good and pleasing to God in the sight of our Savior. And he's not referencing just the, pra the praying for the civil authorities. He's talking about all of this. The life of prayer in the church congregation. This is good and pleasing to God. And I said I would come back to this. This should be a prayer for salvation or evangelistic prayer. Evangelistic prayer in verse 4. A very hotly debated verse. I was uh, kind of finding a way to not talk about this verse today. <laughs> so I was like, ah, maybe. Uh, no, but it's here in the text. So let's talk about this one today. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on this one. Verse 4. Who, and the who here is God our Savior, who, a verse 3, God our Savior, verse 3, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This verse figures prominently in the debates, particularly between Calvinism or Arminianism. And as much as I would like to get into all of those de debates today, uh, I don't want to get into it in depth. But I imagine many of you go, yes, I have questions about this. Because I believe in those passages that speak about God uh, electing us from before the foundation of the world. That God predestines 
those, that the work of God to save somebody is really, that's the work of God, even though we do genuinely, truly believe. It's his grace given to us, the gift given to us that enables us to believe. But yet, what about these other passages then say, like this one, that says, God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. How do we make sense of those, those kinds of passages? And how many of you have wrestled with this question before? Okay. So today I want us to look at least just one little part of that. I'm not going to get into the whole debate, but I want to look at one helpful part, I think, is a very helpful part for understanding this verse. And it's going to be centered around uh, this the extent and the effect of Christ's atonement. So the basic question is, for whom did Christ die? And the church throughout history have answered that question in in two basic ways. Related to the first one here, and that's the extent. There's one side that says Christ died for all. And then Another side that says Christ died for the elect or his people that he knew from before the foundation of the world. I want us to look at this, the extent and the effect of Christ's atonement. The first one is the effect. There's one side, and so there's kind of like a part A and a part B here. That the extent, excuse me, the extent of the atonement is universal in its scope. For whom did Christ die? He died for every single human person. And in answer to the effect, how, for whom was this effectual? They would say, well, that too is unlimited. Okay, this is a very small minority of uh, position throughout church history. Very few that would say that the extent of Christ's atonement was universal. Christ died for every human person. And the effect of Christ's atonement was universal, that all humans ultimately will be saved. Okay? So this is the position known as universal salvation. Who holds this position? Universalists. What's the scriptural support for this? Uh, Not any. (laughs) I'll be really honest here. If I've never seen really a, a more, an effort so singularly focused at distorting and twisting the scriptural arguments and completely ignoring so many of the obvious ones than those who would say, actually, every single person is going to be saved. Some even say, even Satan is going to be redeemed. Even Hitler will be saved. Everybody will be saved in the end. Well, you don't have to go very far in the New Testament. You don't have to go very far from this passage to see that that it's clearly not true that not all people will be saved. So there's one group that's, that says Christ's atoning work, for whom did Christ die? He died for everyone, and it's unlimited and universal in its extent and unlimited in its effect. The second group would be also on the universal in extent category, but uh, they would say, oh, well, obviously, because we want to be consistent with Scripture, it's limited in its effect. So in other words, Christ died for all, but the effect of his saving work is limited 
to a certain number of people. In other words, Christ died to make all people savable. But the limiting effect is purely on those who make a decision or not, or uh, perform certain sacraments or not, or do, uh, do certain level of obedience or not. So they would say it's universal in extent. Christ died for every human person, but not universal in its effect because not everybody will be saved. Christ died for every person's sins, in other words, but the forgiveness only comes to those who repent and believe. So the cross of Christ just makes salvation possible. But the saving effect of Christ's cross is realized only when the conditions are met. So who holds this position? Well, Roman Catholics hold this position. Eastern Orthodox hold this position. Lutheran hold this position. Arminians hold this position. And you could even say four-point Calvinists hold this position. And they would cite the typical verses. For God so loved the world. Or this passage here. And they would argue that this is necessary for effective preaching so that every single person could be told Christ died for you in evangelism. This is the universal in extent view. And here's the other view, limited or particular in extent. For whom did Christ die? He died for a particular specific people. And, and then, therefore, it's limited or particular in its effect. So Christ died to save only those whom the Father had predestined to give eternal life. The atoning work of Christ is applied in due time to all whom it was accomplished. So Christ didn't just die to make people savable and then say, it's out of my hands. Christ's atoning work actually accomplishes what, is, what his work was intending to accomplish. He dies for a people to save them. And who holds this position? Uh, well, tend to be called the Reformed position or Calvinistic position, which is unfortunate. It goes back, way, way back. It's sometimes even referred to as the Augustinian one, because it goes back to August, Augustine, not Augustine. Augustine's in Florida. Augustine's in heaven. I always got to remind myself of that. So how do, you, how do we help make sense of this? And so I said, let me give you, because that's the, the, the comeback here is, well, what, 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 how do you explain all of these passages that talk about us going and preaching the gospel to all people? How can we go and explain um, that Christ died and it's accomplished this work of forgiveness of sins. How, because the, the charge against this third position would be, see, you're limiting the gospel only to a certain number of people. You're, you're not preaching the gospel to all. You're, you're only preaching to, and then in some extreme forms, it would be like, we're not really even going to preach the gospel at all because the Lord will save who he's going to save. And so they get lazy in their evangelistic efforts. But, but let me tell you that that's not, that's not an acceptable approach here. And so this was very helpful for me into understanding how do we understand this 
universal call for the gospel to go out. But the reality that only some are saved in Christ, the atoning work is only for some. Here, it's, it's this. It's the distinction between... Um, uh, oh, I didn't create the slide for it. Okay, should we get the dry erase board out? Okay, Gabe, will you grab the dry erase board and bring it over here? Yeah, I'll find a side here. Okay. Can everyone see this okay? Somewhat? Okay. Thanks, Gabe. All right. So let me do it this way. The distinction between gospel call, and look, they even put a line there for me. <laughs> gospel call and effectual call. Or calling. Effectual calling. Uh, the gospel call, and then I would put it this way, uh, too. Let's, let's call this outward call. By outward, I mean it's actually like happens in the real world. It involves, you know, speaking, language, or, or even could be writing, but it involves typically speech and the ear. So outward call. And then there's the inward call. Or we could, uh, let me add two other key words here. And then let me put this, we'll put, we'll put word. Okay. And then over here, spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. Everybody see that okay? So these are the two categories I want you to, to think about. The gospel call, the, the reformed reform theology would make a distinction between the gospel call, which is that outward call, which is the preaching of the gospel. It's preaching the word. It's sharing verbally the work that Christ has done on the cross. Uh, but there's then also what's called the effectual call or the inward call that's done on the heart. It does, it's not so much the ear as it is the heart. That's done in the heart of the hearers that brings the sinner to salvation. And that this is a work of the spirit. Many of you, you've heard me talk about word and spirit before, the importance of word and spirit. This is what I'm referencing, the difference between gospel call and the effectual call. Because these two things go hand in hand to regenerate sinners and to bring them to Christ. There's the outward preaching of the word, but then the internal work of the spirit who uses that word. Okay, so there's the outward call. The gospel is preached to all and the scriptures encourage this. Old Testament and New Testament, Isaiah 45, the call where the Lord says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So because someone make the charge that because God has uh, elected some to salvation that he's going to bring it, that he's not serious about this? He is serious about this. He's serious about the, the call of the gospel outwardly goes to everyone. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't that sound like a universal call? That's because it is. Or as the Apostle Paul, speaking about his ministry, he says of, of Christ in the work of the gospel, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or their trespasses against them, and then entrusting us with this message of reconciliation. And then he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What's the Apostle Paul doing there? He's doing the gospel call. The Apostle Paul doesn't go. Now, I've talked to a lot of you before in my um, letters about election and predestination. And so there's a call for some of you. No, the call goes out to all. Paul understood, understands this. The outward call of the gospel. It can be resisted. It can be rejected. But yet, it's still given. All men are invited to come, to drink freely, to buy bread without price. And forgiveness of, and salvation is promised to all who genuinely repent and believe. Now, I'll say this. The outward call alone will not. I'm just talking about just the outward call alone. The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But the call itself, apart from the inward call, is not going to take sinners to Christ. Because they are by nature dead set against him. We're dead in sin, it describes Ephesians 2. It says that those who are unregenerate are enslaved to the devil. That we do not understand. We refuse, we refuse to go, do, do good. We do not want to submit to God. We are alienated from God. We are unable in ourselves and unwilling to turn from our state of depravity. We suppress the truth in righteousness. For us in that condition to be saved, another call is necessary. To bring sinners to salvation, the, the triune God extends the inward call. And as sometimes this is what is also referred to as the irresistible call or irresistible grace. We didn't deserve this. He didn't look at us and say, that person's deserving of an inward call. And that was, no, he's given that to his people. So the inward call is what God extends. It's, this is what results in, in conversion. It's where God's living voice in Jesus Christ quickens us, opens up our ears, and we hear, and we go, oh, I hear now. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Again, this is word and the spirit. There's the preaching of the gospel, and then the spirit using the gospel into the hearts of hearers to Quicken them, regenerate them to life, 
and to bring them into salvation. And scripture describes this in a number of ways. We saw this a lot in John's gospel, but let me give you a couple. New birth, right? Or born again. Passing from death to life. Being the drawing of the Father. Being brought into the fold. The opening up of our heart. Being called according to God's purpose. Enlightening the eyes. Spiritual resurrection. Quickening from the dead. Regeneration. Heavenly calling. Or First Peter's words in First Peter chapter 2. Being uh, called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in his divine wisdom and by, by the counsel of his perfect will, God chooses to use both. He chooses to use both. The outward call of the gospel and the inward effective call to save st- sinners. Word and spirit. And so the paragraph 10 of the London Confession is titled of effectual calling. It's explaining this, the, the need for both of these. So that you would avoid the error of going, uh, salvation's only for a few, and therefore I get to choose, you know, uh, the gospel must be for a few. No. It says this. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. By his, there it is, word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. I love that at the end there, because you you realize that when people are regenerated by the Spirit of God, they are actually enabled to believe. You're not robots. The accusations that that you're robots is, is false. God quickens you to make you willing and able to believe. So this is the effectual call. This is how I understand these passages. Like, uh, for God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. When you understand the regularly through the scripture, there's, there's many passages that speak about the gospel call going to everyone. And I think it's a good thing that the Lord has not made it so we would can tell. You know, are you seeing those memes like people put on their, these, that guy in the movie puts on the special glasses and he can tell who's a zombie or not, right? That's not how the gospel, you don't put on glasses and go, oh, that's an elect, we should go share the gospel with them. No. The Lord in his wisdom took that out of our hands, okay? So Paul in Romans, I love this. The, this Paul in Romans 8 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So foreknew, predestined, and those whom he is predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he's called, he also justified. He doesn't say, and those whom he predestined, he's called. And those whom he's called have made justifiable, he justifies. In other words, God does, through Christ, what he sets out to do. And so if you have genuinely repented of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, know that he's done that in you. The grace to go, why? How many of you go, boy, it was a good thing that I wised up and decided to become a Christian? How many of you think back on it and you go, man, when I really think back on it, this was a miraculous work of God in my heart. Because I was dead set in the wrong direction. And there was, I was not working my way back. And, you know. Now, in the process, God could use a long process in that. But, it, but every single Christian should recognize, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't me. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't me. So in Romans 8 here, what call is the Apostle Paul describing? The effectual call. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, what call is Paul describing? The gospel call. The gospel call. Because keep in mind the context. What's the context? How did verse, eight, how did verse 1 begin? Prayer. Spit, right? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. How, did, how does it end in verse 8? I urge them, all men should then pray, lifting up holy hands. This is all in the context of prayer. You should pray for all people. You should pray for kings and rulers, governors. Why? So that life could go well for me. And because prayer is is essential to their salvation. Right? You notice the connection to come. And so they had to pray for these kings and rulers because we want them to be saved. Um, and so we, because God wants, you know, all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the gospel needs to go to them too. And notice the connection with prayer and salvation. That's evangelistic prayer. Now, some people I know have a problem with God's predestination and election and stuff like that. But if you believe, but if you believed then that Christ's work on the cross was sufficient for every single human person and that it's now up to them and all we need to do is now just preach the gospel. If you believe that the gospel preaching alone was sufficient, then why pray? I've heard people who say, I have a problem with God's sovereignty and election, but then we'll pray for somebody to be saved. Why? Because intuitively you know that God has to do the inward call, right? So this is in the context of prayer. God desires all people to be saved. So pray. Pray for them. Pray for them to be saved because you don't have the goggles to tell. When we tell people the good news of Christ and we pray then that, the God, that God will do that work in their hearts and then we leave it up to him. This is one of the most freeing ways of doing evangelism. Before I was kind of Calvinistic and I had an Arminian approach, I would, I would beat myself up over with how effective or ineffective I was that somebody didn't come to Christ. I must not have said it well. 
I must not have, boy, how could I have been clearer? And don't hear, hear me. We should seek to be as clear as we possibly can. But the outcome isn't up to me. That's the work of God in our We need to be faithful to just share. But then pray that God would do that work in them. So I think we should close with this time by doing what Paul is encouraging us to do. And so if you don't mind, let's just take a few moments uh, and pray for various needs that we have in our church, in our community, and in our world. Can we do that before we take the Lord's Supper together? So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We do thank you indeed for your word that you have given to us. And we thank you for this call to prayer. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have not been diligent in our prayer life, either individually or as a congregation. Lord, forgive us for our shortcomings in that area. And so, Father, we want to heed your word and come before you with all sorts of multifaceted prayer for all sorts of people. And so, God, we want to lift up those who have needs here in our congregation. Those who are struggling financially. We pray for those who are struggling with illness or sickness. We'd ask that you, in your graciousness, would provide for those who have needs. That you would bring healing and comfort to those who are struggling physically. We pray for those who are, whose spirits may be wavering and weak that you would revive their hearts that you would encourage them with the truth of your word we would pray that forgiving forgiveness one to another would be spread throughout our entire congregation as we think of the forgiveness that we have through jesus christ we pray that you would bring peace and unity among all of us and that you would encourage us to love and to good works for one another. God, we pray for our world. And we think that peaceful and quiet does not describe our society today. And so we want to lift up those who are your servants the civil authorities, be they local or state or even at a national level. We pray for the president and vice president in this administration. We pray that they would turn from wicked ways and would turn and do righteousness and justice, that they were not seeking to rule in a way that gets them more power, but seeks to honor you in what they do we pray that the various sins that have been exposed in uh, this administration and even in so many other political leaders that uh, that they would indeed not seek to spin it or cover it but would indeed repent of it genuinely 
that they would recognize their need for a Savior and come to Christ. We pray that at the very least that they would recognize the truth of how your moral law should be upheld and that would, they would operate according to that. And we do this so, so that we could have a peaceful and quiet life and we could live out faithfulness to you unobstructed. We pray for all of those who are serving at various levels and we pray thinking of even John Hart today as he is uh, serving as a police officer even this morning. We pray that you protect him and keep him safe. We pray for the various needs in our congregation. We think of uh, Jason and Jana, they're returning from their honeymoon. We pray for Ari and Matthew as their wedding is coming up this week. Lord, you know all of the needs that are in our congregation, and we just bring them all before you. And God, we lastly want to pray for the salvation of sinners. That you would uh, help us to be faithful in sharing your word and to just preach your gospel. To share it. The good news about Christ and what he has accomplished. And what he promises to those who repent and believe. And we know that you will give the gift of repentance and faith to those whom you will. And so we pray for them. We pray that people would come to a knowledge of the truth. That people would have their sins forgiven. That people would, in fact, be reconciled to you. So make us mindful of the gospel call and aware of our need to pray to you for the inward work in their hearts. And indeed, we thank you for the restoration and reconciliation that you have given us in Christ. And as we now turn to the meal that you've given us to nourish us with the truth of the gospel, we pray that you, in fact, would do that. And we know that this is a means of grace, that we are, that we are communing with your Son, our Savior, as he is seated at the right hand, interceding for us. And so... We thank you that he is present here spiritually as we come to the table that you have given us. And we pray this in all of these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen.